If you become good at, as an organization of learning, accepting and learning from the, the small sort of failures and have a culture where you do spend time and, and, and some money learning from when things went wrong, instead of just sweeping it under the carpet and blaming somebody, then, then you can avoid those, those big catastrophes you read about in the newspaper, you know? I think that's the most important lesson. Hello, and welcome to the Global Venturing Review podcast. I'm Fernando Moncada, and we've got a really, really cool one for you guys this week. I'm speaking to Dr. Samuel West, a licensed clinical psychologist and specialist in organizational psychology, who is also the creator and the curator of the Museum of Failure, a traveling collection of products that have failed in the conventional sense, but represent something far more important, which is the willingness to fail. Anyone working in corporate innovation, corporate venture capital, or in any field of innovation will know that the fear of failure, the unwillingness to fail, effectively means the death of innovation. Because without that appetite for risk, without the understanding that not every initiative will be successful, you're left with an incredibly narrow path to creating anything new. So what lessons can we draw from our own failures and those of others? That is what I asked Dr. West about. He talks about the differences between good and bad failures, how organizations are not that different from individuals in terms of how they view and deal with their failures, the importance of creating a psychologically safe environment where failure is not punished, and how we went about putting this impressive collection of corporate relics together. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast, and above all, enjoy the show. So Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you, sir? Very good. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course, of course. So yeah, to start off with, you know, tell me a bit about yourself. You have a, a PhD in organizational psychology and somewhere along the line, you identified failure as an interesting topic of, of focus. So what, what is it about failure as a theme that kind of drew your attention and how did the idea for the museum come about? Uh, wow, that's like 10 questions in one. You, you start off with like full force. That's how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a clinical psychologist, you know, since way back. So the whole idea of looking into when things don't work out well, sort of in a clinical perspective, has, have, has been there for a while. And my PhD was in organizational psychology focused on how to encourage organizations to adopt a culture that's more experimental and more sort of exploratory. And those two sort of activities are, are, are what innovation is all about. And they're also very prone to failure. So, or, you know, failure or just like not leading to anything. And it was in that work that I started getting more and more fascinated with, with failure as sort of like how important it was for innovation. And I, and I was like, what should I do with all this information? There's some really good research. There's some exciting examples. And it's definitely a topic and it's a theme that needs more attention, I thought. But I was like, oh, should I write a book? Nah, should I? <laughs> should I write some more articles? Nah, I don't know what, really what to do with this or give some talks and stuff. And then, and then I was uh, with my family down in Croatia and stumbled upon a museum called the Museum of Broken Relationships. And I was just like, you know, I don't even like museums. I've got too, too little attention span to like museums. <laughs> But, but like this, this, this was like an awesome concept. They just had this crazy concept and they had artifacts and they, they had an entire museum and it was super interesting. But this concept of, of how fleeting our relationships and how fragile they are. And I thought, well, if they can do that, I can do a museum of failure. So that's so my inspiration was very sort of 
directly take it from the Museum of Broken Relationships. And I was, after that, I was like, God, no, I'm going to do this. Got some funding for it from the Swedish Innovation Fund or Innovation Authority. So they invested in it or gave me money. And um, so did, yeah. you, did you kind of go up to them and just say, I want to I want to open this kind of exhibit with a lot of failed products? <laughs> I wish it was money? that easy to give free money. <laughs> 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 no, it was it was um, I've been working on a bunch of innovation projects, part, some of them financed by the Swedish Innovation Authority for a while. And when I thought of the museum, I was like, I got to th This is like right up their alley. They have to fund this. <laughs> So, you know, I had to write a big project plan and stuff for, for it. But yeah, they, 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 they didn't complain. And they were quite generous with the money as well. So, and without them, I, I mean, it took, it took about half a year to, to sort of open, of hard, like full-time, super-focused work to open the museum. But had they not given me the money, I would have started it anyway, but I would have had to work. A lot longer. <laughs> click those consulting hours yeah. a lot more <laughs> before opening. And how'd you go about getting everything together? Was it like through eBay and stuff like that, platforms like that? Yeah, eBay was super important, but even sort of obscure forums. I mean, I bought stuff from like the Finnish small ads sort of sites, from, from Russian sites, from Craigslist in the United States. So I, I, I know everything about sort of eBay and the surrounding sites to eBay. But eBay was super important. <laughs> And then, and then what happened, as soon as the museum got global sort of publicity there, like a couple of months before we opened it, you know, an article in the New York Times, and it was like huge global coverage. Then it changed. Then people and companies started donating items to the museum. And that's how it is today. It's almost entirely growing because of donations. That's one of the things that I want to ask you about. So you have this kind of you know, this collection of things that didn't work out for companies, right? So what was their kind of initial reaction? So it's interesting that now they're kind of donating. <laughs> how, how do they first react to yeah, it? Yeah, that wasn't the case yeah, in I can the imagine. <laughs> so I was quite, I mean, I, after being working in this sort of innovation, innovation swamp, I call it, I had quite good connections, at least in Scandinavian Nordic countries with sort of CIOs, etc. And when, when I opened the museum, I was naive. I thought I would just send a, an email saying, hey, guys, cool Swedish, cool Danish companies. Hey, I have, I'm opening the Museum of Failure. It's about uh, highlighting the role of failure in innovation. Send me your stuff. That was completely uh, off because nobody sent me anything and they they unfriended me on linkedin <laughs> and yeah so nobody there was zero response i got nothing from the companies nothing nobody wanted to even be associated with museum affairs but once once the museum opened and once they understood that this is real this is not just sure there's humor in the museum absolutely but it's not it's not just laughing at the failures it's learning from those failures then the companies were much more open about it are much more sort of willing to collaborate. I remember I had a, a visitor. This is the first summer we were open and I had a visitor, uh, an American. There was a lot of sort of international visitors because of all the publicity. And he was walking around. He took a, took a while. And, and then when he was done, he asked the staff, can, they, can he meet me? And I happened to be there. So yeah, of course, and whatever. 
And he takes out a business card and gives it to me. He said, I'm head of product development at Microsoft. And I was like, shit. Because we have like three items from Microsoft <laughs> in the midst here. I'm like, it's going to sue me or something. And then he's like, love your museum. Contact me because Microsoft has a lot more that deserves to be in the museum. <laughs> Interesting. So it was kind of, that kind of sums up sort of that, that little story there sums up sort of the response from even big multinationals, how their perspective changed when they understood what the museum is about. Yeah, that, that's interesting because what was his, in, in kind of reaching out to you and saying, you know, talk to us whenever you need new stuff, you know, what, what was it that he was trying to do there? Just kind of the same thing that you were trying to do, I guess. But. Yeah, I think, I mean, and this is not just Microsoft, it's more or less most companies, at least the, the ones that are in innovation sort of demanding industries, they, they get it. At least the people involved in new product development and sort of innovation heavy parts of the company, they get it but they still have a hard time talking about it and getting support up and downwards in organizations. So it's a challenge that everybody has. So they're quite free, open about it. And I think what he and many others, that some companies want to be associated with Museum of Failure just because they, you know, because, you know, they buy workshops and keynotes from me and they send their teams to the museum as, as, as an edu educational, inspirational opportunity. And that's cool. I like that because they pay me money. <laughs> but <laughs> then you have the, then you, some companies want to be associated with Museum of Failure. You know how like greenwashing is like, they, they pretend to be all environmental and friendly. Yeah. There's, some, there's like innovation failure washing as well. Like, oh, hey, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're actually a horribly boring company where failure is never an option and, and et cetera. Right. But we want to sort of be cool to, talent and so we want to be part and associate failure so we have that sort of failure washing part as well yeah, kind of like we're we're innovative but just don't look at what we're actually doing type of thing yeah so like we're super innovative and we're so cool and we and failures yeah we embrace failure and then association to museum of failure and then the reality is they don't right well i mean i think that kind of gets to the heart of it right how you kind of react to failure because every company does at some point and Think for us as a, as a company and kind of publication, it's really because we're focused on corporate innovation and obviously failure is a really important part of that. So, you know, in the context of failure, do you see that, you know, a lot of parallels between how an organization or a company looks at it and reacts to it versus how like an individual would look at their own personal failures? That's an excellent question. And yes, I, I would say there's more similarities than there are differences there. Obviously, as individuals, we don't have an entire PR machine. <laughs> we don't have a bunch of spin doctors and legal departments, and we don't have that those resources. But but we do it mentally ourselves. That we the strategies are more or less the same. Like um, we 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 don't like to deal with failure. We don't like to admit failure in our private lives, personal lives, and we are very reluctant to learn from failure. In fact, we make the same mistakes over and over again in our lives, whether they're relationships or in our careers or however, whatever aspect of life you're looking at. And same thing for organizations. There's a, you know, we'd rather focus on more fun, more interesting things than, than learning from something that's painful, aka failure. And the, the sort of the way teams and organizations deal with failure are the same. You know, it's, it's avoidance. It's uncomfortable. So we avoid things that are painful. 
So we avoid talking about it. And I think one thing, like, and this is also sort of parallel individuals and, and organizations. And when we talk about failure in corporate speak, it's covered in corporate bullshit, <laughs> right? So, so that, oh, yes, we had challenges that year. And we, something, and they, <clears throat> everything sounds like they didn't fuck up, you know, <laughs> when in fact the failure was total. But, the, but they make it sound like, both internally and externally, like it was all like perfect. And that's, that's an avoidance. You can't learn from something. I mean, if you don't call it failure and don't say, yeah, we screwed up and let's learn from this. And it's very difficult to extract anything out of that. And the same thing goes for our personal lives. If you say, yeah, I was just unlucky with that relationship. If there's nothing wrong with me. I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> then it's difficult to learn from that experience. Right. And within a company, you know, at what level does this fear of failure tend to be the most pronounced, right? So is it like the upper level C-suite or is it at the business unit level where maybe they're a bit more scared of maybe you know, wasting some budget and maybe looking bad to their superiors? Where does, that kind of, where does the biggest pushback come from? The pushback comes from, I mean, the, the, the people at the top are usually, of course, there's, there's a bad generalization but my experience is that they are usually quite open they're quite accepting of failure at the very top it's that sort of mid top and mid level where they still have to report upwards where the fear of failure is the greatest and then of course it goes all the way down to the floor as well where if you're afraid of being penalized for taking a meaningful risk and of course you don't take that risk you avoid it <laughs> you know it, it, and it's a <laughs> I'd say the ones at the top are the, the ones that are the sort of most agreeable to any of these notions of accepting failure. But I, I did a I did a, a talk for a big tech company, and then afterwards we had lunch, and it was a very like sort of very successful company. And then I had lunch with the the, the, the top guys there. They're, they're, I, I was invited welcome to their table. Anyway, so we had a little chat, and then. I was told like, yeah, this, this is very good for everyone here to hear. And it's like, excellent talk and all, all this great stuff. But then they said very clearly like, but we can't follow this. <laughs> like, Why? Yeah. So it was, I, I, that was like, uh, that was an exception to this rule that the higher up you go, the more accepted. They're like, if basically if they, when they make a mistake, they expect to get fired. Like, right. When they, risk and they you know they they things go wrong they at least in this company despite all their successes they were like yes their 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 position is at risk and that was kind of interesting like everybody else has to hear about this and it's good for them to understand that you can accept failure but if we do it we're screwed like so there's mul there's it, it's nuanced it's not the acceptance or willingness to take meaningful risks and accept failure isn't straightforward and do you see that as a failure itself in terms of building a company? Like, can you talk about the concept of, of psychological safety and how it applies here? Yeah, so psychological safety, it's gotten a lot of attention as a concept the last 10 years, especially the last five years or so. After Google's huge study on high-performing teams showed that that was the most important factor to build a high-performing creative innovative team. And the concept is quite simple to explain. I mean, it's a feeling of safety within a team where you're, where you can take risks, you can be vulnerable, you can be, you know, you can do things and ask questions and comments where they don't have to be perfect. 
you can admit your failure is a big part of that and admit your ignorance without being it's not like everything's okay you can be a stupid lazy person who always messes up that's not the case it's more that within that team you feel safe to present that and you won't be punished for it that's that feeling that so that's safe it's really easy it's a really easy concept but it's very difficult i haven't seen very many great cases of actually establishing a good deal of psychological safety so it's a tricky it's easy to to, to discuss it's easy to put on a powerpoint slide but it's it's more difficult to actually establish that. Can that be at all fixed by just having kind of having like a money allocation that you can kind of experiment with? Or is it more kind of psychologically rooted? Like, I don't want to look stupid to my peers or my, or is it like, if I, if I lose, you know, however many, you know, 300 grand or whatever, I'll get fired. I think, I mean, certainly there's some attempts there. I mean, some companies have their innovation sort of pipeline or process is such that you get money for a project and you know it's a high-risk project and if you fail you, you there's no shame you move on to the next one and there's sort of there's no shame in killing projects or you know failing and that's certainly a way to reach sort of a greater psychological safety at least if that's i mean for me psychological safety isn't it isn't sort of the end game it's a way to get to get to get um to get a culture that's more embracing of taking those 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 risks that need to be taken and asking the questions that need to be asked. So I think the money part is part of it, but I mean, the most important factor for psychological safety is if you're, whoever is more senior than you in that room is willing to admit their failure, admit their incompetence, ask the stupid questions, you know, not know it all. So like, I think, I think that's, I mean, we, we learn by example, if, Whoever is higher up than us or who has the informal leadership, so to say, within that room or that meeting, they're going to dictate also what the culture is of that, that setting. Right. And so have you seen like a cultural dimension here in terms of, you know, some, if you go to, for example, a country like Japan, you see their corporate structures tend to be more hierarchical, which might lead people to believe that, okay, maybe if I mess up here, the consequences will be more severe. Is that? Yeah. 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 There's definitely, I mean, I'm fascinated by the cultural, regional differences. I mean, both within organizations, but even geographically, culturally. The degree of psychological safety at a Dutch or British or Swedish tech company is completely different from a, a Korean or Japanese or Chinese company. So there's a huge difference. And even in the United States, I mean, the difference between West Coast and otherwise, there, there's differences there as well. But in general, um, the and this is this is not scientific. So I'm just throwing this out. It's just my experience working in the past six years. I would say that psychological safety in Sweden, Denmark, you know, the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands is pretty good. And then as you move south in Europe, down towards the Mediterranean, things start to get more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's an interesting juxtaposition because I mean, if you look at you know Japan or Korea, those have been sources of massive innovation, right? So is is it just that they're kind of standing on a massive mountain of dead fired bodies? Or yeah, I don't. I I, I just. I mean, I've read. I'm not an expert in in the innovation levels of Japan and Korea, but there are some theories or some articles I've read recently. It's like yeah, I mean. 
they're good at producing things, but a lot of the true breakthrough innovation is not coming from there. It's coming from predominantly the United States and, 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 and Northern Europe. So, I mean, I'm not saying that Japan and Korea are not innovative, not in any way, but like there's a difference between actually being innovative and, and then actually being good at right. you know, right. managing things, manufacturing things. But, but I mean, but to answer your question, the, the relationship to your boss <laughs> is essential here. And if, and if, and if you're, and if the leadership style is that you never say no to anyone more senior than you, then of course, that's not going to be conductive to psychological safety. Right. Like in any way. Right. To what extent does the nature of the failure matter when it comes to the company's desire to kind of sweep it under the rug? So like, what I mean by that is, Take an example like Google Glass, right? So you have, you know, one of the biggest, most successful tech companies in the world creating this product that doesn't really have a bad concept, right? So it's a wearable computer. I mean, we've seen a version of this in like every sci-fi movie ever, right? Yeah, I know. It's it was the future, man. It was awesome. Yeah. Exactly. And and I mean it's still kind of like if, if you know, a lot of people will still kind of think of something that you wear to superimpose things on top. But, you know, maybe it was partly a failure of timing a bit, you know, around, around the same time as that happened, you know, that was around the same time as Edward Snowden, and we all kind of started talking about privacy more in earnest, right? So you could say maybe part of that failure was, you know, inability of developers to anticipate that kind of shift in the zeitgeist. How does that stack up against, you know, something that's just a conceptually stupid? <laughs> <laughs> Oof. That's a difficult one because they're kind of, they're, they're always difficult to tell the difference at the time, you know. Right. Yeah. But then hindsight gives us a bit more perspective on. That. Well, I mean, something like you know, bottled pet water. Someone yeah, could have shot that down in, in the meeting. That was stupid. Like that's a silly product. Like, so Google Glass is it's fascinating because, like you said, it's a massively successful, awesome, big company, and they got a lot of things right with it, but then they got most of it wrong. <laughs> Like there was no use for it. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do anything. It was a, it was a very well developed prototype that was launched as if it was. I remember I wanted one. <laughs> like I was willing to pay anything to get one. I'm glad I didn't get one. <laughs> but I mean, there was nothing you could do with it. There was no applications. The privacy issues were a huge concern as well. And Google, they have a history. There's a site called Killed by Google. It's beautiful. There's a whole list. I think they're up to like 400 things, like oh, right. innovations from Google. They just create and then they kill it. Some of those merge into something successful, but most of them just die and get forgotten about. Mm. I mean, so, so I mean, Google Glass, is it a stupid idea? Was it a stupid? No, not at all. And quite right now, Google Glass is quite successful in enterprise versions. But um, it's difficult to know at the time if it is a good idea or not. Right. And armed with that hindsight, do companies have a different approach to how they kind of look back on it? Ah, companies are—they have such—they're just like human. They're just like individuals. They have such sort of almost personality characteristics and in their in their take on failure. I worked with a big unlisted company, huge, that had you know that's that's it's in every country on earth, and their take on failure was. We, we tried failure once and we didn't like it. 
<laughs> <We're> like, <laughs> you're enough. a billion, billion, billion. Like, yeah, but yeah, we, we tried it and it didn't work out. We, you know, and, yeah, it didn't and, work out. And it's so shameful and it's so horrible. So there's no willingness to take any more risks that might be as big of a failure as that one back in 2002 or whenever it was, you know? So right. it's that. And then you have the, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the approach where like you can just sort of fancy words and spinning it the right way, make it, make the failure go away by sort of never admitting that it was a failure. And then you have companies that actually appreciate, that actually get it, that are like, yeah, failure is part of our core. I mean, as much as I dislike Jeff Bezos as a person, Amazon, Amazon I, I don't know what it's like today, but when I was doing most of the research on sort of corporate sort of attitudes and approaches to failure, Amazon, just in interviews with Jeff Bezos and sort of people that worked there, at least the higher, like in the, in the sort of development sort of departments, they, um, they have, they totally, they totally get that you have to, if you're a big company, you have to take big risks <laughs> and then your failures are spectacular also. So there's exceptions to that. Yeah. And following from that, you know, is, is there such a thing as, you know, a good versus a bad failure? Yeah, that's one of my things that I, I kind of get tired of hearing my own voice talking about it because it's my, any kind of time I give a talk, it's always, regardless of what the client actually asks for, I always get it in there. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one problem is that we only have one word for failure. failure. Mm-hmm. It would be better if, it, if we had a more sophisticated language. So we actually said good failure or bad failure. Right. Or failure and, and the learning, I guess. Yeah, but, well, not, but there's, yeah, that, that's one aspect of it. But so uh, a bad failure is, let me take a good failure first. So good failure is when you're pushing the boundaries, when you're testing ideas and methods and, and you know, actually novel approaches, you know, technology-wise or concept-wise. You're testing, exploring and experimenting. Those failures are good, you know. They might cost a lot of money when they fail still, but they are failures that are done sort of in the name of innovation. And then you have the bad failures, which they're predictable, <laughs> they're avoidable, they're, they're, they shouldn't happen, you know. So I, I've gotten several donated Samsung phones. Remember the ones that caught on fire on airplanes? Yeah, they, those were like the little no, the Samsung Notes, right? Or, Note, Notes, yeah. 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 I can't remember what year it was, but I... I Not too long ago. Not too long ago. Well, it's longer than you think. (laughs) Maybe I'm getting getting old. (laughs) You're getting old. But I I won't... That that has no place in the museum failure because Samsung wasn't pushing... There was no innovation there. It was was sloppy manufacturing. It was a faulty quality control. Right. So that's that's avoidable failure. There's, They shouldn't... There's nothing good there. Um, that should be penalized and punished. Mm. However, and then I think it's what, was it three years ago, Samsung launched the Fold? Yeah. And they got, you know, hounded like, oh, Samsung, you screwed up big time here. No, that it's one. doing great now. I've now seen posters great. all over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, at the, when they launched it, it was a catastrophe. But that's good failure. You know, they're actually developing a new, new technology and pushing it out. They got it wrong. And they learned from that and now it's successful, but that's good failure, you know? So the note catching on fire versus the fold, they screwed up on the launching there. That's good. So there's a, I think there's inherent, that's, a, that's an example of a good failure versus bad failure. 
Mm-hmm. So then, what determines it isn't just the reaction to it, but I guess the conceptualization and the yeah. execution. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so many ways. Like the fold phone, and the, maybe it's not the most interesting case study, but they um, there's so many reasons why in a, um, a product or service fails. So there's themes to why they fail, but they're not really strong things. So there's so many different ways a new product launch service can fail that it's really difficult to foresee exactly. It's impossible to foresee everything. The fold could possibly, if they would have sent the, the tech reviewers phones that actually worked, that would have been better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. You'd think, you know, if, if you're going to send it off you're to be reviewed. Send your phone to a journalist. It better work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so would it be fair to say that bad failures are the ones where, you know, maybe the only meaningful lesson is, yeah, let's not do that again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so even manufacturing, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy on you here. Go for it. Go for it. We like it. So James March, he's like, was, I think he's not alive, but it, the biggest sort of name in organizational uh, science psychology. He, he sort of said like he divided organizational activities into what he called exploitation versus exploration. So exploitation is making the shit, selling the shit. <laughs> You know, like that's what companies do, right? Whether it's services or products. And in that area, you can learn from processes that have gone wrong. You can learn from things that have gone wrong, absolutely. But it's in the exploration. That's innovation. That's exploring new you know, business opportunities, um, new technology, etc. That's where you, that's where we have to embrace failure. So that I would say that good failure is done on that end of the spectrum and the bad failure is done on the other end. What what kind of reactions do you typically get from people that come and and see the exhibitions? I would say like the, so basically the exhibition is created for innovation nerds. And the fact that it's actually an exhibition that that people have nothing to do with innovation and joy is a a bonus. I mean, I wasn't expecting that at all. So people actually enjoy it just, you know, even though they're not in any industry where they, you know, have anything to do with innovation. I think the, for me, the coolest sort of reaction is when people go to the museum and then they feel liberated and say, oh, I saw that, you know, all these big brand, big, rich, famous, successful companies and people behind these companies, they fail when they try something new. So that means I can also. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, oh, well, maybe the big company had more money to afford it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they do lose more money when they fail. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There was, there was this one couple that came, I remember them well, an older couple who spent a lot of time in the museum. Most people spend like an hour. They were there for like two hours or more. I was like, but they were Spanish. They had probably, I, I assume they had problems reading the text in English. Hmm. Anyway, that was my assumption, which was wrong, because afterwards they came and they said, this, this museum is the best thing that's happened to us in a long time. I was like, wow, wow, what's, <laughs> what's going on? You know, it's not that great. <laughs> but um, they said that they own an, a small bed and breakfast, a small hotel in, in Barce- Barcelona. All right. I was like, okay. And they're like, yes, we are so inspired by your museum that we've decided to take a risk. Like, whoa, whoa, what are you going to do? We're going to update our breakfast menu. All right. (laughs) It's such a fun example because for them, that was a big, I mean, for us, it's easy to laugh about it or whatever, and it's cute. But for them, that was a big risk. And they thought, 
we're going to try it and we're going to see what happens, you know? Yeah. I'm like, you go get it. You go change that <laughs> breakfast menu. <laughs> well, I mean, if you take someone like them with like a small business and you take, you know, one of the bigger companies, you know, I mean, I know that there's a bit of a between like a, there's a difference between like a bed and breakfast and like a new, a new tech startup or something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. is there, you know, a meaningful difference between uh, big companies and, you know, startups or small companies with regards to failure? I mean, we always hear about, you know, move fast and, and break things fast, but it, does that hold up really? I mean, that's why bigger companies have outsourced failure to the startups. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean <laughs> cause they can't deal with it. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely undeniably a difference between the startup risking everything and taking big, big, big risks for them in the company versus a big, you know, corporation that has built a structure within the organization to actually eliminate failure <laughs> and risk. So, I mean, there's, there's a huge difference between those and that's quite smart for companies to outsource failure to startups because then they can just, you know, it still costs money, but then it's not their failure, it's startups. Right. So with someone like, well, with, with, for example, a lot of people listening to this will be part of some corporate venture capital unit somewhere, which kind of find themselves in the middle of that, right? So they work for the big company, but they invest in the little startups that, that take a lot of risk. So how, you know, for, from a, from an organizational psychology point of view, you know, how, how does this affect them relative to, to the other kind of two ends of that spectrum, the company and the startup? I think most companies, and this goes for like public, you know, government organizations as well. Most companies, they need to improve their ability to take risks. And when I say that, I'm, I, I mean, most, most companies, if not all, <laughs> could actually benefit from being more, have a, having a more experimental approach to things. So instead of like spending months or years and millions of dollars on developing the perfect whatever and then launching it and realizing that it's a pile of shit and then, oh no, we lost a bunch of money, they would do well to be much better at, at doing a real quality experiments. And failing in the small way that doesn't damage the organization, doesn't get anybody fired, doesn't kill anybody. And with that approach, they can be much more nimble, flexible, and take those risks, but in a controlled way. So, I mean, so I think that's, I think that I'm not, I'm not advocating that, that companies be reckless and just fail fast and break things. That's, that, that's a kind of a dumb way of looking at things. Mm-hmm but fail mindfully and learn from it, you know, it's much better. And then even better if you can design it as an experiment. And for a large company, buying a startup or, or collaborating with a startup, that is a way for them to do it a little bit more experimental. Like the budget is there. We'll see what happens, you know? So it's, I mean, done right, it can be a great strategy. Have you seen any kind of common threads in be- like between the failures themselves, you know, mm-hmm. what, what are some of the biggest failures have in common? Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I had a great answer for you on that because I would probably be much uh, more successful. <laughs> but um, there are themes, but like I said, there's also a million ways to fail. Tolstoy wrote a, one of the quotes from Tolstoy was um, in Anna Karema, he writes, I say, all happy families are alike but every unhappy family is unhappy in their own special way. 
So I like to, I like to change that into failure, like all right. successes are alike, <laughs> but every failure fails in its own interesting, you know, special way. And despite that being true, some of the themes, one theme, it's very strong at the museum. That is when your, your product or your service is overhyped. So failure is always connected to expectations. So when you've hyped up, everybody wants their thing to go viral, you know, and become the hottest ticket in town. But when that happens, if there's no substance behind it, or it's overhyped, which often is the case, then the failure is more spectacular and greater risk of that. There's quite a few examples of that where it's overhyped. I mean, one of the most historical one is the Ford Edsel from 1958. Ford's, Ford, Ford's biggest, you know, one of the automotive industry's biggest failures, where had they not hyped it up, it would have probably been okay, you know? <laughs> But they like drummed it up and like, this is the best thing you know, ever. And, pe- and then people got confused and were very judgmental and the, and the project failed. Was that the one with the kind of oval looking grill at the front? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, why do you, what do you think of that grill? It's interesting. I mean, BMWs have two of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of the reasons they failed. <laughs> really? Oh, it was because yeah. it was too well, similar. I, I, no, it, it, no, 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 no. I don't know how much of this is actually true, but one of the one of the many reasons why the Ford Edsel failed was that people you have to remember this is in the in the nineteen fifties in the United States. They thought that the grill looked like female genitalia. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't uh, wasn't a manly car for Ford, I guess. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well when you look at that and, and, and like at your collection as a whole, and I think you've already touched on, on a bunch of points here, but what what are the biggest lessons that a company can draw from this? Especially maybe if it's a company on like on the smaller side or, or a smaller team, rather. I, I mean, I, I, I do think that the biggest lesson, general lesson, is to be more aware of, of when you fail, it's painful as a team or a company, but um, it's, you know, it's not permanent. All the, most of the companies represented in the museum are very successful. So, of course, some of the failures are devastating, but if you can truly appreciate that failure is uh, necessary for innovation in any sense, and progress in a general sense, then, then if you can be better at accepting when it happens and destigmatize it within the organization, you can learn a lot from failure. And that will then prevent, if, you can, if you're really good, if you become good at as an organization of learning, accepting and learning from the small sort of failures and have a culture where that, where, there, where you do spend time and, and, and some money learning from when things went wrong, instead of just sweeping it under the carpet and blaming somebody, then you can avoid those, those big catastrophes you read about in the newspaper, you know? So I think that's, I think that's the, the general, that's, that's the most important lesson. There's also this idea that Many organizations are, they're all about like failure prevention and failure avoidance when in a, in a, in a world where things are changing so fast, that's a stupid strategy. (laughs) It's much better to be better at failure recovery, you know? So instead of spending so much time and effort avoiding failure, which, which defeats, I mean, you can't, there's not going to be much innovation going on when you're avoiding failure become better at sort of dealing, learning from and recovering from failure. 
So to to use a clumsy analogy, is it kind of like you know using one of those seismic machines to do like the little tremors, right? Be be comfortable with the little failures yeah, so that you avoid yeah. the big one. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, catastrophes are definitely bad. I don't think anyone listening to this will, will disagree. <laughs> no, no. And they're very, these big failures, the big fuck-ups, they're really difficult to learn from for an organization because they're so painful. And usually when, when there's something, a big failure, the explanations are not just straightforward. Like there's... There's multiple levels of why, why, what happened. I mean, a new product isn't launched today without multiple teams signing off on it and thousands of man hours put into it. So the failure can't, can seldom be pinpointed exactly. This is what went wrong. There's, there's second and third sort of level explanations of that as well. I think most companies don't spend the time and make the effort to learn from it. All right. Well, hopefully after listening to this, they'll think about it a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> but before I let you go, you know, where can people check out the museum for themselves? You know, where will you be exhibiting next and, and when? So the, the museum is a touring exhibition. And uh, right now it's open in Calgary in Canada. And it looks like, looks like we'll be opening in, in Central Europe pretty soon. And then on the East Coast, New York area pretty soon as well. But it's always available on, I mean, museumoffailure.com is definitely, there's about a third of the items are up online on a virtual tour. It's not very professional, but it's there and it's, and it's free. It still is free. And then, I mean, the way the museum, the way it's financed, I mean, the biggest sort of commercial part of the museum is our pop-ups. Say you're doing an event, an internal event or you know, an open event conference on innovation, business, you know, the great innovation plus plus, then the museum is, I bring a, a pop-up. It's a sort of 50 square meters of, of a little miniature version of the museum for the event. And that's been everywhere in the world. There you go. So if you find yourselves in Calgary, go check it out. If not, go online and, and see some of the products there or, you know, you can get a pop-up at your event. So please go ahead and do that because it's a, it's a really interesting because I've, I've looked at your site and it's really cool stuff that you have on there and I'd love to be able to kind of see it in person myself. So <laughs> where, yeah. So, I mean, London, you live in London? Yes. All right. London, I'll try to bring it to London. <laughs> please do. Please do. <laughs> Hopefully sooner rather than later. <laughs> great chatting with you. Yeah, it was great. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show and giving us some of your time and look forward to hopefully seeing seeing the exhibition myself. That does it from us this week. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We've got some really interesting conversations lined up for the coming week, so be sure to subscribe to GVR at your listening post of choice so that you don't miss any. I have been Fernando Moncada. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production, whose great work you can check out at inearproduction.com. And our music is by Kevin McLeod in a Creative Commons license. We'll be back again next week, as always. Until then, have a good one. Thank you.